study in the Psalms. So on the occasional Wednesdays that I will be teaching, uh, we will be going through the Psalms. So tonight, uh, if you want to turn to the book of Psalms, it's going towards the middle of your Bible. Tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a little bit of a background, an introduction to the Psalms, and then uh, hopefully if time allows, we should be able to get through Psalms 1 through 5. And, um, and uh, we should get through about five Psalms each time I teach, unless we're in Psalm 119. <laughs> it should take us a little longer for that one. But um, I'm, t- I'm taking the introduction from um, what, they, what they give us in the uh, ESV Bible, the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's got a great introduction to the Psalms. So bear with me as I read a little bit because this really gives us a great introduction to the Psalms. It's gonna, I'm going to hit on a few major points about the Psalms and so we'll get an overview of what they are. The book of Psalms, or some call the Psalter, has supplied believers some of their best-loved Bible passages. It's a collection of 150 poems that express a wide variety of emotions, including love and adoration toward God, sorrow over sin, dependence on God in desperate circumstances, the battle of fear and trust, walking with God even when the way seems dark, thankfulness for God's care, and devotion to the Word of God, and confidence in the eventual triumph of God's purposes for the world. So, basically the Psalms hit on every single emotion and circumstance that we could go through as believers. There's nothing that's missed. And that's why I love the Psalms. Uh, the, uh, the Greek word psalmos, which translates the Hebrew mizmor, which is psalm. Uh, it's found in actually many of the psalm titles, and, um, and that's what it is. It's praises, it's psalms, it's poems that were set to music. Uh, many of the psalms have titles, like Psalm 3 and 4 and others, and they can include liturgical direction, historical notes, and possibly the identity of the author, which is great, because uh, of the 150 Psalms, 73 of them, we believe, have been written by David, King David. Um, Others, uh, 11 of them, the sons of Korah, Uh, 12 of them by Asaph, and Solomon probably wrote two Psalms, and Moses at least one. And the rest of them don't have any authorship at all, so we don't know who wrote them. Um, David was skillful in playing the liar, which is not a person who doesn't tell the truth, but a string instrument. So um, he took the Psalms, he took the poems that he wrote, he put them to music. Um, he was an accomplished songwriter. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel, as it says in the scriptures. The sons of Korah served in the sanctuary, and Asaph were in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. So they were all on the worship team. And um, and they may, be, may have been choir leaders in the, in the, uh, in the sanctuary. 
the time. The Psalter or the Psalms is fundamentally a hymn book of the people of God at worship. The Psalms take the basic themes of the Old Testament and turn them into song. And I'm going to go through some of those themes. One of those themes is monotheism. The one true God. You're going to see over and over in many of the Psalms this theme of monotheism. The maker of heaven and earth and the ruler of all things. And he will vindicate his own goodness and justice in his time. So those are some of the themes that take in the monotheism uh, aspect of the Psalms. Another theme is the creation and the fall. Though men were made with dignity and purpose, sin caused the fall. And we see in many of the Psalms the weaknesses and the result and the consequences of that sin. Election and covenant, another one of the themes that God chose a people for himself and bound himself to them, which I love, by covenant. God's intention is to save all men. And that's expressed in many of the Psalms. Eschatology, which just speaks of the end times. Uh, the story of God's people is headed toward a glorious future. No matter what we're going through, we know that God has already settled the issue in, in, the, uh, in the end days. So those are some of the key themes that we'll be seeing as we go throughout the Psalms. Now, there are also musical terms mentioned in the Psalms. One of them, such as Selah. Selah is believed, just the exact meaning is not quite known, but it's believed to be a pause, a time to take to reflect or to meditate on what you just read. So, for instance, in Psalm 32, verse 5, it says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. I mean, a verse like that just calls for reflection and meditation. So, the Psalms put that word in in order to give us an idea of, of the, just the sense of the psalm. And then there are different types of psalms. They are categorized into different types according to their use and their theme. In other words, there's psalms of communal and individual lament, lamentation psalms, which express the need for God's deliverance in the tribes. So, again, we can see how applicable it is to our lives. Psalm 4 1 says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. You now, sometimes just reading the Psalms gives application to our lives. And then there's Thanksgiving Psalms. Thanksgiving Psalms are those which make the reader aware of God's blessings and express thanks. Like in Psalm 5, verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make, him, make known His deeds among the peoples. So, a psalm of thanksgiving. Then there's psalms of enthronement. That establishes a mood of worship. 
like Psalm 46, 6. It says, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. So, it brings a certain mood to the worship, those enthronement songs. And then there's songs of pilgrimage, which speak, um, which speak of um, just our, our journey through this life. And the songs that will hit upon those aspects of just as we go through this life, all the different things that we go through. Then there's royal psalms, and royal psalms portray the majesty of God, especially as expressed in Christ, the sovereign ruler. And this one in Psalm 45, 6, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we see the rulership of God, the sovereignty of God, His royalty. And then there are wisdom psalms. This is part of wisdom literature in the Bible. Wisdom psalms give us instruction as to God's perfect will. It says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. So instruction for us. We delight ourselves in the Lord, and He'll give us the desires of our heart. Good words to take to heart and to apply to our lives. And then, imprecatory psalms. This is going in and out. This one? A little bit? Imprecatory psalms. I guess nobody wanted to hear about imprecatory psalms. If there's somebody you don't like, you tell them, I'm going to sing an imprecatory song. <laughs> imprecatory songs are cursing songs. Yes, curses. They actually invoke God's wrath and judgment against His enemies. See, and that's the, that's the thing about imprecatory psalms. It's not, it's not that we're taking personal vengeance on somebody by praying these psalms. It's that they go, they're going against God. They're His enemies. And this is one of my favorite in preparatory Psalms. Psalm 58, verses 3 through 6. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is the poison of a serpent. They are like the death cobra that, that stops its ear which will not heed the voice of charms, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. No. Sometimes we'd like to say that. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. So, imprecatory psalms. Now, they call on, they call on God's help as the faithful are threatened with harm from enemies. And in a number of places, their requested help would be that God punishes those enemies. And we may wonder how that jives with Jesus' teachings. How could we pray a prayer like that? So I'm just going to break down the precatory psalms for you so you understand the, the meaning and the reason for it. Context for 
First, we must be clear that the people being cursed are not enemies over trivial matters. There are people who hate the faithful precisely for their faith. And I think we've all dealt with that from time to time. That people just don't like us because we're a Christian. That's the only thing they really have against us. They mock God, and they use ruthless and deceitful means to suppress the God. Second, it's worth remembering that these curses are in poetic form, and they can employ extravagant and vigorous expressions. In other words, they can exaggerate sometimes, but their exact fulfillment is up to God. Third, these curses are expressions of moral indignation, not personal vengeance. These psalms are prayers for God to vindicate Himself, displaying His righteousness for all the world to see. So, all the time, it always gets back to God vindicating Himself and then glorifying Himself through the psalms. And with all of these things in mind, we always pray for those enemies of God and enemies of God's people ultimately to be saved. So, the imprecatory psalms have their place in Scripture, but we always pray for repentance for people. And one additional thing that I wanted to bring forth as an introduction is that the psalms don't simply express emotions. They actually shape the emotions of the, of the God. See, a lot of people have a thing against emotions, against feelings. But I believe God gave us emotions and feelings to be used in a particular way. And if they're, if they're used to glorify Him, then I think that that's a good use of them. The emotions are therefore not a problem to be solved, but they're part of the raw material that can be shaped to good ends. So God can take our emotions and He can shape them by these psalms to glorify Him in the end. Just an example, it's not natural to trust God in hardship, yet the psalms provide a way of doing just that and enable the singers to trust better as a result of singing them. I don't know if you guys have ever either read a psalm or sang a hymn and as you meditate on the words, something that you were struggling with starts to fade away. You realize God's goodness, His grace. You realize that you can trust in Him. And the Psalms or the hymns bring that to your mind. A person staring at the night sky might not know quite what to do with the mixed fear and wonder he finds in himself and singing Psalm 8 will enrich his ability to respond. So the Psalms can actually help us respond in a godly way to what's going on in our lives. Whether it's seeing God's awesome creation, or whether it's going through a trial, we can respond in a godly way because of the Psalms. And, congregationally, when we sing, when we worship, which is what these psalms were meant for to begin with, we can encourage one another 
as it says in Romans, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can weep with those who weep because we're connected. And that's what the Psalms do, and that's what worship does, connects us with one another. And so, just to uh, give us one more literary feature, they're poems. So they are written in poetic form, and they use poetic images, metaphors, similes, personification, hyperbole, and so we need to approach the Psalms with the knowledge that it is a poem, and they take poetic license, and it shapes our emotional structure so that we can, I love this, lean into the world in a godly manner. Lean into the world. Because we are in this world. We must live in this world. But we must live in it in, in a godly manner. We must respond in a godly way to everything that we go through. So, therefore, application is inherent in each song. I'm done with the introduction. This is... And can be very individualized as we study and meditate on them. Merely the reading of the Psalms can give application to our individual lives without much exposition. That's why, like I said before, I plan on going through about five Psalms each time that we get together. Most of them are short, and they can actually be read in probably less than a minute each. Uh, Psalm 19, which is the longest, actually the longest psalm and the longest book in the Bible, is 176 verses. So that's going to take a while. And in addition to this introduction that I used from the uh, ESV, I'm going to use John MacArthur's uh, uh, outline format in order to break down each slide. And then I will, I will expound on it and we'll see what the Lord has for us in each psalm. So, if you turn to Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 speaks of the way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. And this psalm, along with Psalm 2, actually provide uh, an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. So, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not slow, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So, in verses 1 through 4, we see that people are separated ethically. Verses 1 through 3, a picture of the godly. Verse 4, a picture of the ungodly. In verse 1, notice the blessings. God's favor 
which ultimately brings happiness to those who are established in the things of God. Their counselors are those who have a good reputation, they're godly themselves, and they're walking in the ways of the Lord. It says, blessed is, the man who, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. See, these surround themselves with the people of God. Who are we? Who's our company? What company do we keep? That tells a lot about us. We surround ourselves with godly people. We will have godly counsel, and we will walk godly too. And notice what the godly person will be kept from, that downward progression of someone who walks, then stands, then sits with ungodly company. I mean, think about that downward progression. You're, you're walking, you're not, you're not settled, you're just going along your way, and then you stand, you stop and you stand, and maybe you take a few minutes, and then when you sit, then you're settled, then you're settled. So, as you surround yourself with ungodly people, that downward progression will start to be seen. By contrast, the godly is focused on God's Word, the Bible. It says in verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's not afraid of its precepts, and he actually delights in the Scriptures. That's a picture of who we should be, someone who delights in God's Word. The word meditate is the Hebrew word hagah, and it actually means to moan or to growl, to utter, to muse, to meditate. It also means to ponder by talking to oneself. So, I guess you could take some scriptures and you could read them and you could meditate on them and then maybe you could start to speak to yourself about how that applies to your life. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Contrast between the godly who's planted, secure, rooted, reputable, and the ungodly who's likened to chaff, insecure, shakable, and of poor reputation. The godly produce a fruitful life. The ungodly have no stability. There's no root structure. They're never in a place long enough in anything godly to produce anything worthwhile. Chaff is that part of the wheat that blows away the unusable part, the part that has no value, blows away with the wind. Then in verse 5, it says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. See, the ungodly will not be able to stand in the day of God's righteous judgment. They will have nothing to say to God. So God judiciously and righteously separates the godly from the ungodly. And we see that in Psalm 1. Going on to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Messianic psalm is like a, a royal psalm. It speaks of the royalty, the sovereignty, and the majesty of God. 
but it speaks of it in reference to Jesus, the Messiah. And this psalm is not titled, although it's probably, it's thought to have been written by the King David. As it moves through David's rule to the greater king in Jesus. So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their, their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So we see in verses 1 through 3, human rebellion. And we see that in, in today's, even in today's human government, we see rebellion against anything godly. Have you noticed, like the taking down of the Ten Commandments in government buildings and in courthouses, to the complete disregard for the teachings and the precepts of the Bible regarding the laws and morality of the ancient think of gay marriage. I mean, they just totally go against God's teaching on these things, and they think nothing of it. And then the mocking and the marginalizing of God's people in every aspect of, pu of public life. If you're a true believer in any aspect of public life, you're probably going to be mocked and ridiculed. So they go against God's people, and they go against God himself and his anointed, Jesus. The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, or Messiah, where we get the word Messiah, or Christ in the Greek. And it says there that they, it says there, the world says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The world feel, feels like Christianity is actually keeping them in bondage to rules and regulations and commandments, and they desire to be broken free from that. That's what the world thinks. That's what the leaders and the rulers of the nations think. They want to be broken free from, from, the, from the bonds. They consider them bonds of God's Word. But in verses 4 through 9, we see God's reaction to the world's rebellion. What does it say in verse 4? He who sits in the, heaven, in the heavens shall laugh. I never really pictured God laughing, but he knows the end from the beginning. He knows that those who mock him, mock his people, and mock Jesus will eventually get their uh, 
judgment. He laughs at those that think that they can take him down. But he also will set them straight. He declares Jesus as the anointed one who has dominion over all the nations of the earth. You know, the kings and rulers of the nations of the world think they're in charge. And God sets it straight. One day, Jesus will rule in righteousness and execute judgment on all the rebellious. And then in verses 10 through 12, God gives them a warning. You see, His grace always comes to them. says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. See, He's saying here, Serve the Lord with fear. Give Him the honor and respect due to Him. He's giving even those rebellious nations an opportunity to turn, to repent. Kissing the Son is a sign of respect and reverence to Jesus. And the rebellious are judged. But it says in the, at the end of verse 12, Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The faithful are blessed. Faithful are blessed. Psalm 3. In Psalm 3, it speaks of the Lord helping His troubled people. This psalm actually refers to a specific circumstance in David's life. If you want to get the context, you can turn to, uh, you can study on your own second Samuel. Um, actually, probably verse, uh, chapters 13, 14, and 15, but especially in verse 13 through 17 of chapter 15. Now, David's sin with Bathsheba resulted in a very difficult family life for David. His sons were obedient to God and several times acted wickedly. This particular psalm speaks of the instance where his son Absalom actually conspired to overtake his crown. He actually plotted to remove David from his throne by undermining his own father and drawing men to himself. So David speaks of that in this psalm. So in verse 1, you see, it says, the son of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, so it tells us the context, it tells us the author, Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him for God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. So three times in this psalm, it calls for medication, med med medication, meditation, 
meditation and reflection. Three times, say First is one to speak of the psalmist predicament. So we can, we can certainly relate, maybe not in exactly the same way as David's predicament, but we can relate. The first line in the psalm is actually called a superscription. And we see that in actually 116 of the psalms. We see that in the very first verse. And what it is, it gives us an overview of the psalm. It tells us what the psalm is about, it gives us the theme, and then times gives us the author. David cries out to the Lord in his time of trouble. He understands that although there were, there were many against him, and even his enemies cast doubt on God's protection, David still knew who to go to in his time of need. We should take note of that. In verses 3 through 6, David knows where his shelter is, is centered. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. He declares God's faithfulness and willingness to respond and to bring encouragement in the midst of the trial. Then David declares his trust in the Lord for his very life, and that he won't be afraid of people no matter what they plot against him. Sometimes we put, I think, too much emphasis on people and not enough faith in God. I know it's difficult. I know people's opinions of us matter a lot. But I think we need to start to turn that around and not worry so much about what people think, but certainly trust in what the Lord has already promised and his word to us. We need to fear God, not man. And then in verses 7 through 8, this is a prayer that David uses when he was going through a trial, and then what we can use also as we're going through a trial, or when people are discouraging us. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck my enemies on the cheekbone, you have broken the teeth of the ungodly, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So he sees the situation already determined by God, and God's blessing upon all that remain faithful. In Psalm 4, Psalm 4 is, speaks of the safety of the faithful. The security of those who put their trust in God. And this is this psalm is the first of 55 psalms which actually gives specific instruction to the worship leader for the playing of the psalm. So, beginning in verse 1, it says, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself who is godly. And the Lord will hear me when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. 
There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put your gladness in my heart, more than in season, that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Verse 1 is a prayer to God for preservation. It says, To the chief musician of stringed instruments, a song of David, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. David recalls when God has already relieved him in times of stress before and just shows his faith and trust in God that he will relieve him during this time of trouble. I love that. We need to remember, look back, and recall those times where God has sustained us through our difficult times. And then in verses 2-5, through five, David pleads his case for trusting God, but he actually pleads it to his enemies. I don't know if you've ever tried to convince one of your enemies that trusting in God is the best thing. I'm going to trust in God, even if you are against me. It's difficult. He identifies the place of, righteous, of the righteous in God's eyes, and he trusts that God will hear his prayer. And he tries to convince his enemies of that fact. How often, in the midst of our trials, does our reaction actually speak volumes about who we're putting our faith and trust in. So when people see how we respond to trials, they can see who we're actually putting our faith in. If it's God, then we should have peace in the midst of those things. If it's man or ourselves or something that's unstable, then there will be there won't be peace in the midst of those trials. And even unbelievers, even our enemies will see and recognize when we're stressing over something instead of trusting God for something. That comes out very easily. It says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We need to be still sometimes and just trust Know that he's God, know that he's got everything under control. And then in verses 6 through 8, David recognizes that true peace, true peace, only can come from God. You have put gladness in my heart, it says in verse 7, more than the season, more in the season, in their grain and wine increased, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. Although people may not be able to find any goodness in this fallen world, we can still give them hope. Hope in God. And I love this verse that says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. What an awesome thing to be able to just put our head on the pillow at night, no matter what we're going through, and know that God has everything worked out. We can put our faith and our trust in God no matter what we're going through. And to be able to sleep, you know, sometimes 
trials just make us restless. But to be able to just trust and to just get a good night's sleep, that comes from God. That peace comes from God. And in Psalm 5, this is a prayer for guidance. This psalm contains two basic elements, lament and imprecation. So we're going to see an imprecatory psalm toward the end of this. That is prayer to God for direction and guidance, along with prayer for judgment on David's enemies. So in verse 1, To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, let all those who rejoice who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those who also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him with a shield. David sees God as his king, yet he realizes that he has access. Access. David has confidence that Yahweh will hear and respond. Imagine, we have, uh, we have access through Jesus to the King of Kings. We have access to the Creator of the universe. We have access to our Savior. And David expresses that. Sometimes we wake up in the morning with a need that only God can fill. Maybe you did have a restless night. Maybe there's something on your mind. Maybe there's a trial that you're going through. And you wake up, and the first thing out of your mouth in the morning is just prayer. Prayer to God. He hears that. David's no different. David's here to encourage us. It's not a bad way to start our day in prayer. In verses 4 to 8, David explains the reason that he's seeking God in, in prayer. He says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Because God is omniscient, he does not have to be told the reason for our prayers, but we need to declare his character and nature often 
evil can dwell in him. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is in light and in him is no darkness at all. So we need to understand God's nature, God's character, and his attributes. God will not endure the proud or the wicked, and he'll enact righteous judgment on those who are deceitful. They'll be judged. And God also asks, asks to be directed by God. Uh, David also asks to be directed by God. Sometimes when our enemies seek to destroy us, we can become disheartened and we need direction. We need God to just give us uh, the right path. And in verses 9 through 12, David prays for justice and declares the faithfulness of God to those who love and obey him. Verse 10 expresses David's desire for their end. It says in verse 10, Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. See, that's the nature of the judgment. They rebelled against God. And in verses uh, 11 and 12, David explains the reason that he's confident that God will fulfill both justice and grace. Three times, David mentions joy with regard to his relationship with God. It says, Let all those who rejoice put their trust in you, verse 11. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. The fact is that God showers his grace and his blessings upon those who trust in him, those who put their faith in him. And that should cause us to rejoice. And we should recognize our own, our own fallen state and praise Him for His grace and His mercy. Because we could be in that seat of judgment like the unbeliever is, and yet because of God's grace, He lifts us up. And we need to rejoice in so as we can see, the Psalms are going to cover a wide range of emotions, of circumstances, of situations, uh, just because they were written many thousands of years ago doesn't mean that they still don't apply to our lives. And I love the prayers, I love uh, the seeking God, I love the practicality of the Psalms, and the times of meditation, um, because it's so poetic, it, it causes us to um, uh, have different emotions and feelings about God and our relationship with God. And that's a good thing, because I think sometimes our relationship with God can get dry, and the Psalms will sort of breathe life back into that. So, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace and your